Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, so, full disclosure, I don't know when this episode will be uh, posting. We're recording it in late December, um, so I can't really direct you to anything particular uh, specific on the website or anything. So what I'll say is just go to more than one lesson.com and see what there is to do there. That's all I've got. Um, so yeah, today we are going to be talking about Stephen Freer's film, Florence Foster Jenkins. Uh, but before we get into that, I'm going to welcome in my co-host and yours, mostly yours. Cause I'm, he's, he's, Growing tiresome to me. Uh, Robert Hornack. Robert, how you doing? Howdy, Tyler. How are you? <laughs> uh, I, w- I do wish this were a video podcast so people could see your coquettish <laughs> smile. We um, might be uh, recording in Los Angeles, but you can't get the deep south out of me. That is uh, that is true, yes. Yeah. Always a southern boy. Can't take the Louisiana. Louisiana, exactly. Right. Well not, said. Not Louisiana. No. There's an I in there, but I guess nobody noticed down there. Nope. Skip right over it. Absolutely. There's no I in Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. So, okay. Florence Foster Jenkins. This is a movie that looked interesting to me. I wasn't that super interested in it. Um, It came out at a time where I still had my movie pass. And so just having that just forced me to see at least one movie a week just to justify the cost. Um, and it came out at a time when it was mostly blockbusters, uh, or, or summer movies. Mo- the vast majority of them I did not care about. And then this came out and I thought like, all right, I, I guess I'll watch that. Um, because nothing a, else was out because <clears throat> nothing else, but also it's just like, it's a director. I like it's a cast. I like, it's an interesting idea. I was worried that it would be a little bit too precious at times. The mm-hmm. trailer certainly made it look that way. Right. But I thought you could probably do worse than the people involved sure. in this film. So I went to see it and I would say by and large, pleasantly surprised. There are things about it. I love, and I mean, love, there are things about it. that I think like, eh, all right. Um, I think they probably could have delved a little deeper um, into exploring what makes the character of Florence tick. We get some stuff and it's, and it's written well and it's played well. And we get, definitely get a sense of tragedy to this woman. Um, but I think I would have liked to know for listeners that don't know, this is based on a true story about this woman in the 1930s and forties, I believe, um, who was a socialite and very wealthy and also a, a patron of the arts. She loved music and gave a lot of money to musicians and various uh, uh, organizations. Uh, but then she also used to be a singer, but sort of lost her voice. But that didn't stop her from singing, and she is, in fact, terrible. Um, but her husband, who loved her very much and wanted to shield her from pain, uh, emotional pain, um, he never told her that she was bad and tried to make sure that she never got word that she was bad. And where I would, and all of that is, is fascinating to me where I would have liked more is the idea of like, how does she not know she's bad? This is a woman who does know music and she knows she used to be able to sing. Maybe she st- thinks she still can, but at the same time, this is not a dumb woman. 
I well, do you disagree? I, I don't disagree. I, I I don't think she's dumb, but the movie, the way the movie is written, and the way she's portrayed by Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. she seems excessively flighty. That's a good which word is for not it. dumb per se, but it's I means she may know things. She's yeah. not dumb, but there's there's a, a disengaged quality to her per, per, her personality that makes you think. Well, I guess and maybe that was by design so that you would kind of buy into the fact that she mm-hmm. doesn't realize it. But but there's there's definitely a quality where maybe maybe she doesn't realize it, and maybe the shielding of that fact by her husband was enough. Yeah, and it seems far fetched though. And I, and I do think that like the script could have delved further into that. It could just be the fact that she loves singing. She's not good at it, but she loves it. And that love is enough to keep her doing it. I mean, I definitely, I know people and sometimes at church, I will hear people who clearly love to sing, but cannot sing. And I'm somebody who, uh, I have a fairly limited range within that range. I do quite well, but it's very limited. If it goes even slightly high or low, (laughs) I'm out. Uh, and so, but I, but you know what I mean? Like, and maybe the film did not want to really hypothesize as to why this was able to happen for her. Um, but at the same time, I would have liked maybe a bit more explanation on her part as to why this is even possible. Yeah. It feels almost like if I were turning this episode on and starting it from the beginning, it almost sounds like we started from the middle in a way, but that's okay because yeah. the things I'm saying, I want to say now feel like the middle of the show, Yeah, but it feels like the, the movie need, needed to, it, it couldn't decide what it wanted to be. It couldn't decide if it wanted to be a, like a straight out comedy yeah. that's sort of like banking on us, obvi- knowing how obvious it is that she's terrible yeah. versus a movie that is about a woman who has passion for music, has passion for opera, wants to be part of that world, and will do anything to get into it, even at the risk of embarrassing herself forever. Um, but it's 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 both. And because it kind of bounces from scene to scene from one to the other, you don't really know how to feel about her. And that married to the fact that she's written in a way where she's flighty, performed in a way where she's kind of flighty, mm-hmm. you can't ever get, a re- you'll never get a reason for, for the reason that you're kind of wanting I mean, there's just, it's, it's not built into the way any of it is, is made, the movie. I would, I would classify it as a comedy with heart, as opposed to a drama with, with comic relief. I, I definitely think so. it is primarily a comedy, but with some moments of genuine tenderness and some really nice uh, relationship stuff. I was frustrated by that, that, that stuff because of the way the rest of the movie played. It's like one scene has me laughing with the other main characters at how terrible she is mm-hmm. turn around your, the music kind of swells a little bit, the soundtrack music that is. And we're asked to listen to her as she talks about what she wants to do in a way that feels, uh, it's just filled with pathos. It's like, ah, uh, really? Yeah. I'm supposed to suddenly feel like, Oh yeah, she should go for this. And the fact that it yo-yos you between those two from scene to scene, literally nothing in between just, you know, oh, we're going from this to this makes it a failure to me, honestly. See, I actually like that it's, it's that jarring of a shift because it literally, it's the perspective of outside and inside. This is how everybody sees her from the outside. But as tends to happen, you know, uh, with anybody that we might find ridiculous. Um, okay. Here, a tangent real quick. Um, I'm sort of fascinated by viral videos 
more specifically the story behind them and the story that comes after. Uh, and there have been not necessarily documentaries, but there have been videos online where it catches up with so and so, you know, after there after this thing happened in the, you know, eight, 10 years ago, and they became really popular for this silly thing. Sure. Um, you know, what have they been doing since then? Because they're a very specific type of famous. Nobody knows their name, but they know their face and everyone has seen it. So this person can't walk down the street. They're, they're the Star Wars kid forever. Star Wars kid. That's a good example because his life was basically ruined, mm. um, which is, you know, unfortunate. Uh, but then there are some that have kind of a good sense of humor about it, but but it's because their lives weren't necessarily ruined. Sure. Um, and so to be be known as kind of a laughing stock, you know, if you're a, if you're an actor, you walk down the street, people will be like, "Hey, I saw you in so and so. Great job," or that meant a lot to me. But literally anybody for, for many of these viral video stars. Anybody who recognizes you recognizes you from something terrible. <laughs> from being a buffoon for yeah. 35 seconds. Yeah. For a, day. Like, uh, and, we, and we're all that. We all yeah. do stupid things. We all say stupid things. But thankfully, nobody is recording at the moment. <laughs> right. Um, and so I'm personally fascinated by perception versus reality, or at least the surface versus what's underneath. Um, and... The whole reason that we as a culture know about Florence Foster Jenkins is because this was a woman who lacked the self-awareness uh, enough to realize she couldn't sing and that she shouldn't. Um, that's what we know. And it, so you and I recently recorded about Sully. And so mm -hmm. clearly this is a thing that, I don't know, I, I kind of hit on these pet themes and I stay on them for a while and then I move on to something else. And so the idea of how the public sees somebody versus how they actually are and how, what obligation does the filmmaker have to capturing both? Hmm. Do they immediately drop the public perception in favor of the, of the behind the scenes or do they stay purely uh, on the surface? An example of that that you and I both saw was, I think it's called Elvis and Nixon. Yes. Which that there's one where it's primarily making fun. It's certainly, it's making fun of Nixon completely and it's mostly making fun of Elvis, but occasionally it has these moments where it wants to be like introspective and Michael Shannon does a good job with that, but it, it just seems really tone deaf because the whole time it does seem to be making fun of them and making fun of just this ridiculous right. thing. Stephen Frears is a, is a savvier director than that. And I think he is able to capture this tone of a woman who is in many ways kind of garish and kind of ridiculous. And in some ways, this might be a bit, a bit of a stretch, in some ways deserves to be laughed at in this respect. But that doesn't mean that she deserves to be laughed at in every other way. Hmm. When she talks about you know, her, her illness, I believe it was it mercury poisoning or something like she that. Had syphilis. Syphilis. My friend. Okay. Um, why am I thinking mercury? Is that, well, I think uh, she takes mercury oh, for that's, the syphilis. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So she has syphilis and, and, and it has like really ravaged mm -hmm. her body. She shouldn't have been alive. Yeah. At that point. And so, and when she's talking about the person she used to be and the person she isn't anymore, there's a real sadness there. And I think Meryl Streep is a good enough actress that she can find humor in sad moments and find this, the tragedy in humorous moments. And so I don't mind the jarring, the jarring shift a, because I don't find it that jarring as a function of the performances, but also 
in those moments when it does go from one to the other, uh, I feel like it is the director approaching both aspects of this woman and what we know about her and who she actually was. Yeah. What's interesting is, uh, uh, if I shift my, my assumption of the movie that it's about her to, it's about Hugh Grant's character, which is he plays her husband. Yeah. In a sense that kind of forgives the jarringness because he's kind of the same all the way through and he's, his purpose is the same in every, every one of those scenes. So that when it goes from the scene where we're supposed to kind of laugh along, not he's not laughing, but he's laughing along with the other yeah. people in the room that he's wished weren't laughing. Yeah. And he, you, there's like a close up on his face, like feeling so terrible because of how she must be feeling being laughed at cut to uh, the next scene. And she's sitting next to him, maybe at, at Carnegie hall, for instance, yeah. when she, her dream is to be at Carnegie hall. And, uh, and she's saying stuff like, well, if you love me, you'll, you'll support, support my dream. And he's like, of course, of course I will. And you're looking in his eyes. If he's yeah. the main character, if it's about him and his arc, well, then the, the jarring nature of that kind of is dismissed or goes away or is lessened because it's about him. I definitely think he is a co-lead, uh, mm. regardless of various category, you know, categorizations for award such, uh, right. you know, circumstances. Um, where it's easier to classify him as supporting, mm -hmm. he's definitely a co-lead. And it could be argued it is more from his perspective because while we do get scenes without him in it, the scenes with him are the most aware. Hmm. He knows everything. He knows that she's not very good, but he also knows that she has a good heart and that he loves her a great deal. But he also knows all the stuff that needs to go into shielding her from criticism. Right, And so... I don't know. This is something I'm only now thinking and I'll throw it to you. I don't know how developed this is. Would you say that the lead of any movie is the person who is privy to the most or at least knows the most? I don't know. I, I'm hard pressed to like think of examples off the top of my head of yeah. movies that work uh, when it's, when the main character doesn't know, but I mean, the definition of dramatic irony or draw a lot of drama is that when an audience knows something more than, a, than the main character does, yeah. or when the audience knows that this person, uh, this person who isn't the lead knows something that, Oh, if only our lead knew that yeah. or vice versa. So I, I don't know that it has to work dramatically yeah. for the main character to always know everything. Um, I, I, now that I think about it, can you think of a movie that, that a, a main character does know everything all the way from beginning to end. Because well, if he did, I, then there's no everything. drama. There's no conflict. They know the most okay. in any given circumstance. No, that can't be right. Unless that it's can't a thriller. Be. What do you mean by that? Well, a thriller, it's very much a thriller or a mystery. Then you are, you're in mystery. the position of the main character. So you're finding out things the same time he is. But I feel like if it's, if it's a drama, here's, here's what I mean. The fact that we are shown the behind the scenes things that he is doing mm -hmm. shows that we're seeing stuff from his perspective. She doesn't know that. And so because we're seeing things from his perspective and we're seeing more of the complete story of what's going on, I feel like that bite almost by default makes him a lead, if not the lead. I, I, I agree with you that he's the co-lead, okay. but I, uh, again, I guess if a movie is called Florence Foster Jenkins, it's, right it's about her and it's from her perspective. Yeah. Um, but is it really, if she is as flighty as I described her earlier, yeah. is there any way to make her more of a lead and keep her as flighty and disengaged as 
I described her. And I think this this speaks to the the script. And a good thing about the script is I think he realized the only way to make a movie about her is for the character, her husband, St. Clair Bayfield, to be as prominent as he is. If you made it only about her, well, then you're only seeing a limited perspective because there's a lot of stuff she didn't know. Right. And the stuff she didn't know is, is exactly what allowed her to continue doing what she was doing, right. the way she was doing it. Yeah. And so, and you'll find this all the time with biopics, uh, is that the lead is, you know, this person that we all know, and then supporting is their long suffering spouse or whatever. Sure. Um, but I think this one definitely is elevated to a co-lead situation because so much of what he did allowed her to, the whole reason we know about her is because of stuff he did. Exactly. You know? And so, no, uh, I have no problem with that. Um, <clears throat> it's, I'd like to also talk about, uh, what's his name? Simon, Simon Hel- Helberg? Helberg. Yeah. Simon Helberg in the Gene Wilder role. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like the first scene he's up and I, I, I went looking through reviews, seeing if other people had mentioned this mm-hmm. and I couldn't find, I didn't read all of them obviously, but uh, I couldn't find anyone else saying it. But the first time he shows up on screen and he's doing that kind of paused sort of like, I sort of yeah. re- restricted sort of reaction. It's like, I'm not going to blow my top. Like I feel like right now because yeah. of what this woman is doing. And it's obviously so bad, the wide eyed and the kind of meekness about him and his size. And frankly, the way he looks and his, his facial features, favors Gene Wilder. I'm like, this is, he should be Gene Wilder in a movie about Gene Wilder. Um, I really enjoyed watching him. Although, uh, back to the, the sort of, is this a comedy or drama? Mm -hmm. His performance is bizarre in this movie. I mean, it is so comical, but not realistically comical. It's like, he's doing a bit almost like, like in a, a sitcom, frankly, or in a skit or something about the same subject. Um, he's good at it. He's very good at it. I go back and forth on his performance. There are times when I'm just like, you're, you're doing too much. Way too much. But other times I'm like, I do love it though. I, I, you're doing too much, but I'm enjoying everything you're well, doing. Well, that's, that's why I say it should be in a different movie. I mean, mm-hmm. just take that exact performance, put it in a different movie or take this movie and make it all kind of like that. Well, you don't want it all that broad, but right. But he's just such a bizarre character. He's like a cartoon in the middle of a, what is trying to be a realistic depiction of these people. And of course, I immediately looked up all of these people after I saw the film. He's uh, he's a real guy who was very strange. Hmm. Very strange. Tell me about he it. Was, well, I he didn't... was a musician. He was... Um, oh, the bodybuilding. He got into bodybuilding <laughs> as he got older. Well, he and, shows it shows that in the movie. Like, right. He's like lifting weights for no good reason. Yeah, that that's a... It's something that he was passionate about. And then that became his whole life was bodybuilding. It was like judging. It's just at the end of the movie, actually, actually, yeah, I think like yeah. on his picture of the actual guy. Yeah. Uh, and then he was, uh, a gay man. Um, I did not know that. And so I think the film hints at that with a couple of glances right. at parties and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but he was just not to imply that him being a gay man makes him strange, but I would say, He's a, he, he definitely has a passion for music, but he also has a, an obsession with bodybuilding and he is one way or another in a theatrical environment. Mm-hmm. And so him being a bit over the top makes a certain degree of sense. Um, I would say that his performance and he, he does allow the character some nice quiet moments. Like when he and Florence are talking about real things, I think he finds some nice things in there, but honestly, and again, I enjoy his performance. I do too. A lot. 
But I think I might agree with you is that in that like, you know, Simon Helberg is primarily a sitcom actor. He's on mm -hmm. the Big Bang Theory. He was also wonderful in A Serious Man. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. He's really good in Just it. Just look at the parking lot. <laughs> you know, I love that. And he, and he hits those, he hits all of the notes exactly right, but it might be a little bit too broad. Um, it's Gene Wilder. It, yeah. But let me, it, let me but, underscore that. But there's it's nothing so, wrong with that, you you know, know, officially. There's you know. this one moment I, I rewound like three times. He says something, he like realizes yet again just how his career is uh, going to be a bust if he's yeah. seen with this poor woman singing on stage. And it, he just kind of like looks down in a very Gene Wilder way. He goes, we're going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> and it cuts to the next scene. It's like, yeah. does the cut from that was perfect in his performance uh, in that moment? And there, I, I enjoyed the moment where he's talking with her and he's, I mean, you know, his ship has come in financially. Sure. Uh, and then he makes his way to the elevator and just like starts laughing laughing oh, yeah and i feel like moments like that honestly moments like that to me are what bridges the the tone between drama or at least biopic and comedy because this is a guy who recognizes that this is a, a nice enough woman and she means well um and that this is going to be very good for him in a lot of ways sure. and then only when he removes himself from the situation does he see the inherent absurdity of it. Yeah. And so as we I, would, he is the audience surrogate, basically. Yeah. More, I, think, I mean, if you just had Hugh Grant and uh, Emeril Streep, yeah. you wouldn't have a balanced movie, even though you're getting yeah. the flightiness of her and her passion for music and the terrible voice and the machinations behind her actions or inactions based on Hugh Grant's yeah. decision for her life. You wouldn't have a full movie without some sort of surrogate, and that is this bizarre little man. Yeah. it's It really is... Uh, Choices like this to have it be, he, he's definitely a supporting character, but he's given a fair amount of screen, screen mm -hmm. time. It really is these three. Um, and I think you need all three um, structurally yeah. to really appreciate this odd situation. Um, and so the juggling uh, of perspective from one to the other to the other, sure. I think really helps move the, the film along. And can I say something about Meryl Streep? Sure. Real quick. I, I've come to a point in my life where I've seen enough Meryl Streep. Okay. Um, and I say that, uh, let me let me unpack that a little bit. I mean, she's a brilliant actress, mm -hmm. clearly. Um, Award-winning actor. Who, who, who am I to say? Battleship Pretension listeners voted her as the best actress of all time. Okay. See, who am I to argue with Battleship Pretension listeners? Nobody. Uh, I am nobody. Um, I am Simon Helberg. I could see as that. Gene Wilder. Yeah. Um, but she, uh, but she kind of does the same thing a lot. And that thing that she does for me personally gets, it's as soon as I see it happening on her face, I'm like, I don't want to see her. I don't want to wait for her to find the tears or I don't want to wait her for her to find the quirky way of saying this instead of just saying it. Um, I just get kind of get tired of it. However, because the movie is balanced enough, mm -hmm. because there's enough of Hugh Grant being Hugh Grant in scenes by himself and Simon Helberg being Simon Helberg in scenes by himself, and you get her being as flighty as she is, I don't mind her in this movie. And hmm. um, there are moments when I'm kind of like, okay, get on with it, get find, find the emotion. She really does kind of take her time getting to an emotion in a way that doesn't feel like a character. It feels like an actor trying to find the moment. Hmm. That's just me. Um, but I, but I really liked her. What was I going to say about her though? Just the fact that, well, anyway, she's just, she's just a great actress in this movie and I enjoy her. 
I'll find what I was going to say as you're talking because well, I can't I, remember what I was going to say. And, and I actually, I still respond to her. Uh, I do think that, yes, we do. This is going to sound insulting, but any actor that has been around for a long time, you sort of feel like, okay, I, I know their tricks. Right. But they're not tricks. Just we all have our ways of talking, and you're not going to drop them simply because sure. you're playing somebody else. Right. My favorite actor of all time, Robert Duvall, he has tricks. Oh, big time. You know? I love his tricks. Um, th- I do, too. That's why he's my favorite actor. <laughs> you know? Um, obviously, somebody like a, like Nicholson or Pacino or Robert De Niro, they all have their tricks, you know? They're um, ways of getting from here to there emotionally. Exactly. As any of us would if we were, if we were doing something. And so, um, you know, and I, I still res- – I'll say this um, – Meryl Streep in something like Adaptation is a nice uh, change of pace where she's not doing a voice. She's not doing an accent. She's not Margaret Thatcher. She's not Margaret Thatcher. She's not uh, Julia Child. Oh, um, yeah, exactly. She's herself. She doesn't, she's not hiding behind a wig. And I don't mean yeah. to say hiding, like, I don't mean to put it that way, but like, she, all she has is her own voice. Yeah. Her own looks. She is good in that movie. She's great. I think she's a, she's marvelous in that film. But I also love her in Julie and Julia, you know, where she is playing, admittedly, kind of a an over-the-top woman, or at least a woman who had an over-the-top yeah. voice and, yeah. and way of carrying herself. Um, I didn't see August Osage County. Um, oh, my gosh. I saw the first 20 minutes. How is it? Had to stop it because of Meryl Streep, frankly, because it was, <clears throat> well, actually, it was the tone of the whole movie. It was like one of these... Family dramas. Yeah, based on a play. Lots of stuff going on. Lots of lots of big emotional stuff going on. And I wish I could remember specifically what my issue was with Meryl Streep, but there was it was like she almost like she was playing it like a comedy, but no one else was. Mm-hmm. That's how over the top it was. For me. Again, for me. I mean, a lot of people accolades, you know, they liked the movie and it got awards, I don't know, nominations anyways, but I I couldn't do it. I'll say this, my fir- having not seen it, my first instinct would be like, I'd rather see a sardonic comedy than just another family drama. Boy, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'll take uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf any day, Ooh. which is funny, bitterly, acidically it's so. It's funny because it's so bitter. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the yelling and screaming in that movie. Um, but, uh, and I then, remember what I was going to say though. And I, and I like her in doubt as well. I, like, even when she's doing these accents and stuff like that, yes. I still respond to her because I do think that she does find the emotion. And even if I recognize the way in which she's going to find the emotion, I'm still fine with it. And I, and, and, and I think she did a good job in this because it can be very difficult to, okay. Florence is not dumb. Let's stick with the word flighty. Um, and maybe not incredibly introspective. Mm -hmm. Well, Meryl Streep is clearly an intelligent person, and as an actress, she probably has to be introspective. It can be difficult to play to play dumb, not to imply she is that uh, at the very least ignorant, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think she does that perfectly well. Um, I think that she manages to make this character. I don't feel. I went into this movie expecting to really dislike Florence, because anybody that is that ignorant of themselves is somebody that, that I'm, I'm Deserves inclined, failure. Well, I'm inclined to not sympathize with certainly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but she found a, a core of likability and sympathy, um, and pathos yeah. that, that kept me, uh, on Florence's side, even when I intellectually shouldn't be. Well, you, you've basically more eloquently said what I was about to say and forgot a moment ago, which oh, is okay. that 
but I'll take it a, a step further. The the fact that she, the moments when she actually starts singing in the movie, which is relatively early. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's when she's with Simon Helberg in his yeah. first scene while he's playing the piano. Yeah. And she goes into this thing, the singing, which is atrocious. If you, you can look up the actual, like on YouTube, just like type in her name and you can find the recording, the actual recordings from like the 40s, mm-hmm. early 40s. And it is as good bad as you can imagine yeah if you've seen the trailer you know what you're getting into but in the flow of the story when she actually starts singing um you cringe because it's so bad but you're you're interested in continuing to watch meryl streep be bad yeah because she carries it in a way that she is completely unaware of how bad it is yeah. and it speaks to what you're what you're saying about her acting skill is that yeah. she there's a look in her eye like she is perfectly happy yeah. doing this and she is perfectly okay if you even if you're reacting surely she sees people reacting or trying to hide their reaction yeah. surely she sees that whether it's simon at that piano or whether it's an entire crowd in yeah. the audience surely she must sense something and indeed in a couple of moments in the movie she does and reacts to it appropriately yeah. um but you as an audience member or i should speak for myself me watching her in those moments where she's singing, it's actually kind of delightful. Yeah. Because even though it's terrible to listen to, it's terrible in the ear, but you're watching her believe it, and that makes it okay, which has to be why she was a quote-unquote success at it. Yeah. Because people saw the passion that she had for it. It's the same as, if I can, hope you don't mind this, but if I can bring in the companion movie, mm-hmm. just the title, um, it's the same with Ed Wood, or at least the way he's portrayed by Johnny Depp in Ed Wood. Yeah. He's doing things that are clearly the wrong things to do if you're a filmmaker that wants to make anything important at all. But he's doing it with such gusto. Or even mildly passable. Or even mildly passable, even watchable in any way. (laughs) Um, But he's doing it with such a a passion and a delight himself and and a a real earnest sense as portrayed by Johnny Depp and as portrayed by Meryl Streep that what they're doing is the right way to do it. This is just how you do it. This is how I'm going to do it. Even at one point, Ed Wood yells at the guys who are the money men for this particular, yeah. for plan nine and says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. And, uh, and it's treated as a moment of triumph, which it yes. officially is. And yet the outcome is plan yeah. nine from outer space. Well, and that's the thing is, is what we're talking about is people who are allowing themselves to get lost in the thing that they love and they get yeah. lost just as much as somebody that's good at it. Exactly. But at the same time, maybe it, one can make the argument that it is, it is their ability to lose themselves that keeps them from being totally aware of how bad they are. But that's, I mean, that, that could be chalked up to any number of things from autism to sure. to just the wrong friends, you know? Yeah. Um, There's a line in Ed Wood that I wrote down here where uh, Ed's girlfriend says, Eddie's the only fella in town who doesn't pass judgment on people. And then Ed says, that's right. If I did, I wouldn't have any friends. There you go. Now, it's a funny line, but as it happens, I just last night watched a uh, a video online that was talking, uh, a Christian video that was talking about judgment and that we live in a culture that says that like judging people is wrong and that judging in general is wrong. And he says, well, no, judging somebody unfairly uh, and judging somebody when you are doing the exact same thing they are, like that is not a good thing. He said, but judgment is a good thing. Hmm. And so the idea of like, you know, Eddie doesn't pass judgment on people. And as a result, they don't pass judgment on him and certainly not on his movies. Maybe hmm. everybody needs a bit more judgment sure. uh, in this case. But at the same time, yeah, it's, you mentioned having the wrong friends, <laughs> you know, it's, and I've, I'm sure you've been in this situation as well, where I've, I've given 
stuff that I've written to people. Uh, they've given me stuff that they've written and we, I hear their opinion, they hear mine and it can be tough, uh, to tell somebody that this could be better in some cases, much better. Um, and it can be tough to hear it too, by the way. Um, sure. And so I can totally understand that if you love somebody and if you care about them, you don't want to hurt them, you know, and that speaks very much to Hugh Grant's character is that why on earth would I want to hurt somebody? You know, she, I think there's an element of like Florence has so, she doesn't have much, you know, she has a lot of money, but she doesn't have a whole lot of friends, not not real friends, right? Um, Society friends. Yeah. She doesn't have a whole lot of passion except for this one thing. So why would I take that away from her as well? Yeah. Um, come to realize that, you know, she, her passion could manifest itself in other ways. I would say much more positive ways, which is just being a, a benefactor and just finding, cause she could recognize quality in others when she heard it mm-hmm. and, you know, providing, uh, again, being sort of a patron for people. Um, but because she wanted to be involved, actively involved and be one of these things, that's when it became uh, an issue. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think, and this is, this is why I like Florence Foster Jenkins is that it, it faces the audience with a dilemma and it's the dilemma of Hugh Grant's character. Um, there's a scene where he is, um, he's, arguing with a theater critic who went to, was it Carnegie Hall, right? Right. He went to see this performance, heard her, and then is like, okay, I think I've heard enough. I'm going to go write my review now. And Hugh Grant is trying to like buy him off. He's trying to stop him. And the critic is saying like, well, this, I love theater and this woman is destroying it and you're letting it happen. Yeah. And you know, it's a testament to the film, I think, that officially I agree with everything the critic says. I'm, you know, me especially, I'm on his side essentially 100%. And yet somehow I am siding with Hugh Grant in that moment. Right. How is that even possible? Um, and I think that's, that is what the core, more so even than the characters. For people like you and I who yeah. value art uh, and value quality work in anything, um, you know, it, it's an affront uh, when somebody who is so terrible can be so successful and it's be so self delusional. Um, but I think this movie along with our companion film, Ed Wood, which we'll get to more in a moment, uh, makes this argument that like, okay, but would you take this away from them? And I don't know. Yeah. It's the question that Aubrey and I, Aubrey, my wife and I, we had a conversation after we watched the movie, uh, that is Florence Foster Jenkins. And, <clears throat> The question is, we just kept batting this back and forth because there is no real good answer. But is it okay? It seems like it should be okay to let someone continue with something that makes them happy. Yeah. Um, I guess. I guess the line between yes, you should let them do what they want because it makes them happy, and no, you shouldn't. That line is well. Who is it for? Who is what they're doing for? Mm-hmm. Um. For instance, Florence Foster Jenkins wants to be an opera singer. She wants to be on stage and provide opera brand happiness to yeah. you know an audience, <laughs> um, whatever that means. And, uh, and and so she wants to sell tickets and she wants to uh, bring happiness to an audience via her voice. 
that that seems like beyond the line because then you're actually making people pay for something that is not objectively not good. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, if you are uh, not the best singer, uh, let's say you have a a, fam- a big family or something, and at Christmas time they come over and you sing for them, and there's an appreciative audience built yeah. into the fact that they're family. Typically, typically, not every family is going to let you stand up and sing for them, but. Um, but the point is that there there are receptive audiences to subpar art, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with uh, uh, allowing that person to continue to do that, or even to get better, yeah. or just to continue to do that. There's there's no reason if you just because if you know somebody and you know their passion, you know their whole life, you know everything that's built into why they're doing this. It's like you understand, and that that helps you to look past how bad it is. Or how not great it is, I should say, because it doesn't have to be bad to, for this line to affect it. Um, however, if you're Ed Wood and your you know your passion is to make movies because Orson Welles is your hero, and he was 26 and he made Citizen Kane, and I'm yeah. 30, what have I done? What if I don't amount to anything? You know, so I got to try. I keep going into his voice. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, but the, you know, if, if he's wanting to make movies that go on a screen that people come, it's the same as Florence Foster Jenkins. Is, you know, you're trying to draw an audience with your talent and make them pay money to see what you've done. Yeah. That's beyond the line because, I mean, somebody should along the way say, you know, you should probably go to film school or you should read a couple of books. You should yeah. listen to a couple of commentary tracks, Ed Wood in 1950. Um, but, you know, that the, the point is that there's, that there, there, there's a line, yeah. But it's that doesn't really erase the difficulty of that question. Like, why, why should I be the one that takes the happiness away from them, if that's the only thing they have? Well, and it also, and let's go ahead and get into uh, Ed Wood. Um, there's maybe one or two things that I want to talk about with Florence Foster Jenkins, but uh, they overlap quite a bit. Yeah. So, um, so with Ed Wood, okay. Here's the here's the question. Ed Wood's movies are objectively bad. Nobody would ever say that they are good. Right. So why is there a movie about him? Why is there a movie about Florence Foster Jenkins? Why are there movies made about historically bad artists? Well, if you're actually asking me, yeah. um, I mean, there's... I mean, I know my opinion, but what's your... I'm sure there's several ways to answer that question. The, the one that comes to mind that's sort of superficially fascinating to me is the whole idea of hipsters... And, sure. and the idea of what a hipster is, whether they'll call that or not, down through the last century of popular art. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's portrayed pretty well in Florence Foster Jenkins. Yeah. There, there's continuous, her ironically. Yeah, there's the people in the back row that are laughing and trying to stifle it. And Hugh Grant's like, just stop doing that. Everyone else seems to be enjoying her in one level or another, but they're actually enjoying her because she's bad. And they're like calling into the radio uh, show to request her music because they want it to become popular because they think that's funny. Yeah. And that's the same thing with the room, for instance, the the reason the room, this Tommy Wissu movie, that's objectively terrible in almost every way. That's why it sells, it sells out theaters when it shows at midnight down the road. Yeah. Have you seen the room? I've seen it three times. Yeah. I've seen it. (laughs) That's how bad it is. I have not seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I have not seen uh, La Dolce Vita, but I've seen The Room twice. There's, there's, what does that say? Well, there's an element of spectacle to it. There's yeah. an, uh, the, the the whole old cliche of like, you know, you, you can't not look at a car wreck, you know, 
or a train wreck. Yeah. It's just, you have to see it. You can't not look at it. You can't stop looking at it once you're looking at it. Yeah. It's the same deal with this. So if somebody points your, your, uh, you know, your apparatus, your, your, you know, your eyes to, to something that's like bizarrely bad, then you're not going to stop listening or looking or watching if it's Edward or if it's Florence Foster Jenkins or, or the room. Is there something captivating about something that's so bad? Yeah. And it becomes its own kind of good. If it's a certain kind of bad, like terrible singing on her part, Plan 9 from Outer Space in terms of filmmaking or the room. These are things that become popular because they're, they're, uh, they're championed by people who are, for lack of another, another word, hipsters. Yeah. Um, but they, then they, be, they kind of take, take on a life their, of their own. And it could be argued. So let's look at the end of, of Florence Foster Jenkins um, in a scene that that in so many ways I would have a problem with, except that I'm there emotionally, which is you have a, a theater full of sailors who are all laughing at her. Yes. And while I don't necessarily like someone standing up and saying, like, stop laughing at her, I don't necessarily like that. Eventually, so they're all laughing at her, but they, she eventually sort of, for lack of a better term, wins them over. Not because they suddenly lose their taste, not because she gets better, but because people are responding to her passion and people are responding to, I, I don't know, to, to her love for this thing. And in that same way, there are plenty of bad movie makers out there, but Ed Wood gets the movie made about him because he was so passionate about film. Well, you asked a question about why Ed Wood specifically. And mm. the, another version of the answer is that Tim Burton is a certain kind of yeah. person. Yeah. Uh, not talking about filmmaking, but just as a person, he's a, the kind of person who seems to gravitate toward major underdogs. Yeah. And misfits is another good word. Misfits, the outcasts, the people who don't relate to anyone else, they, they can't fit in. Misfits. And so he's looking at this guy who was probably, I don't know when, maybe in the early 80s or the 80s, Edward was named the worst director of all time, yeah. right about the time that Tim Burton, who grew up on sci-fi, bad sci-fi and good yeah. sci-fi as well, but loves stuff like Ray Harryhausen stop motion films and yeah. and uh, bad sci-fi movies like Mars Attacks is basically, it's as bad as any of those movies, but for the right reasons. Um, and so he takes this character, or not character, this real guy named Ed Wood, just named the worst filmmaker of all time, but it's it's a guy whose movies he had probably seen when he was a kid on the midnight movie with Elvira or Vampira or somebody, and uh, and wants to champion him. He's like, you know, this guy made a movie that meant something to me, and he himself as a filmmaker inspired me to become the filmmaker I am. If you like me as a filmmaker, maybe you'll respect this guy more because I'm telling his story. Well, and there's there's an element that sometimes bad art can be as formative as good art. Absolutely. You know, I mean, look at Quentin Tarantino, for example. Um, Regardless of what you might think of him, he's definitely a dynamic filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look at the movies that inspired him, now, of course, he's inspired by the great movies that everybody is. But he was also inspired by kung fu movies and grindhouse movies in the 1970s and blaxploitation. Some of those movies are good. Most of them are bad. Some are probably terrible. Yeah. Um, You know, let's stick with blaxploitation. Superfly is amazing. I don't know if you've ever seen Superfly. So Shaft. Shaft is also amazing. I've seen others. Uh, Dolomite is actually kind of a, a, a humorous riff on those movies. But then there's, you know, Sweet Sweetback's badass song. 
Is that how you say it? <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of A's and a lot of S's. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's something like Foxy Brown, which is a, a better example of that just because it's, it's uh, not even a, a, a notable example because it's a, a woman uh, as the lead. But there are, there was a time when I was really uh, fascinated by black exploitation, 70s black exploitation. As was I. Um, and have you seen Black Dynamite? I have, yes. The, I haven't seen the cartoon, but I've seen the movie. Yeah, there are and things I, about it I love. I, I watched it, um, and I, I, a friend of mine and I, Tim, uh, we made a movie that had a movie within the movie, and it was a black exploitation movie. So we made the black exploitation movie. It was like probably cut that together. It's about fifteen minutes of stuff. And he was a connoisseur of this stuff, and I became sort of a quasi connoisseur just by virtue of being around him. Um, and then we watched, or I watched Black Dynamite recently. I was like, they, they. I was kind of incensed at first. Oh, they took, they made the movie that we would have made had we had their budget. Yeah. But then I realized they're riffing on the same exact movies that we yeah. were riffing on. So, of course, they're going to have the same kind of stuff. But that movie is actually, except for the too many winks at the audience, it goes a little yeah. too broad too many times. But the stuff that they don't wink yeah. during is perfectly done. It's like it could could have been made in the 70s. Yeah. I uh, In high school, when I was part of the TV video staff uh, in school, um, one of the things that I made was called Glock Renegade Cop. Nice. And so it was... Uh, I went to a school that had no black people in it just because mm. it was not, not by choice. It's just the way it worked out, uh, in Nixon, Missouri of all places. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it was very much a black exploitation thing. A lot of leather jackets and such. Uh, the, the villain played by me, his plot is out, right out of the French connection where he's using cars to smuggle in drugs and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're dealing with pimps and nice. we used a lot of like seventies funk music and it was pretty awesome i enjoyed it well sorry it was awesome to do i don't know if it's awesome to watch um ours is awesome to watch i'll show you some it's called no more mr white guy (laughs) that's funny there you go um so my point is that like these movies the majority of them aren't that good and i guarantee you that quentin tarantino did not only watch the good ones he watched all of them um and they inspired him to make movies like Jackie Brown, which is a marvelous film. Fantastic. Um, and then he watched these Kung Fu movies and wa- and made the Kill Bill films, mm-hmm. which I don't necessarily love, but I like them a lot. And they're definitely technically proficient, if nothing else. Um, you know, he watched all these spaghetti westerns, not all of them good, and turned out, you know, Django Unchained. Hateful Eight. And Hateful Eight, and even aspects of Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. So, you know bad or even trashy art or just incompetent art can still inspire somebody one way or another. And so I don't think I would argue that anybody should just not make it or that we should stop people from making it. Um, I don't think we should lie to people either, you know? So here, okay, let's, so briefly let's touch on Ed Wood and then we'll get into the, uh, some of the themes that I want to talk about. Um, and we already have touched on them a little bit. Um, Ed Wood is a marvelous film. I think it's probably Tim Burton's best. I was going to say the same thing. Um, Can I shake your hand across the table? All right. Well done. Visual. Um, I do. uh, I I love Batman Returns personally. And Edward Scissorhands is pretty great. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's tough because this was clearly a passion project for him. Um, But uh, when I think of Tim Burton, I think of, you know, German expressionism. And there's not really that much in this film. He shoots it in black and white. But beyond that, compared to stuff like Sleepy Hollow Mm -hmm. or the Batman movies that he made, this isn't that expressionistic of a film. So I I instinctively have a hard time saying that this is his best film because it's not the most essential of his films uh, stylistically. 
Um, Danny Elfman's not even doing the music. I believe it's Howard Shore. Yeah. It is. Um, and so, but in other ways, I'd say thematically, this is an essential, uh, Tim Burton film. Cause he's making a movie about misfits who nonetheless, you know, people that are very much on the fringes in this case, uh, of, of, uh, film culture and right. filmmaking, uh, and that they just, they're ma- they make their way. They're kind of a little makeshift family. Yeah. Um, and it is just, it's a very well-written film. Uh, it's not, not unlike Florence Foster Jenkins is not remarkably penetrating into who Ed Wood was. You never um, really know. Except, yeah, he's kind of a, I'd say he's a mystery of a human being. Um, he has maybe one moment at the beginning, he's laying in bed with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Was it his girlfriend or wife? I don't girlfriend. even know. Girlfriend. And he basically is looking up at the ceiling and says, what if, what if everything I'm trying just like goes up in smoke? He doesn't say that. Well, he says, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? What if, what if I, I can't remember. Yeah, basically, basically that. So he has this moment of like self-realization or self-awareness that Florence Foster Jenkins never has throughout yeah. the course of the movie except by virtue of responding to someone else saying the possibility. Um, but he actually has that. So at least he has that extra layer of depth. But he, I don't think it ever really comes back to that. Depth? Depth. Uh, yeah, indeed. You're welcome. I'm taking my handshake back right now. By okay. Way. Um, but at least he has that. But uh, the fact that he never comes back to it, and because Johnny Depp performs the character in such a way that he seems kind of cartoony, yeah. despite his very clear and real passion, uh, c- keeps it a little bit, more surface from that moment on. Yeah. Uh, which is not a slight against the movie because I'm, I'm with you stylistically. Maybe it's not Batman or Batman returns, but it's, it has a very specific style of its own that yeah. he nails from first frame to last yeah. frame. It's very and, well done. And I actually love Howard Shore's score. It's great. That um, kind of Cuban kind of fifties. Yeah, very much so. Like the use of like bongo drums yeah, and stuff. It's really good. Um, there's a, there's a bit by Patton Oswalt where he was talking about watching a movie called Deathbed, the bed that eats people. <laughs> It's a real movie. Uh, it is. Oh I believe that I, I believe he got the title wrong. I think it's called deathbed, the bed that eats. <laughs> and he just added people to the end. Why not? And he said that when he watched it, he, he found himself having like an existential crisis as a writer because he thought that the guy who wrote death and he made sure to say the top, the full title all the time. He's like the guy who wrote deathbed, the bed that eats people. Uh, he said, he got that movie made. Oh, that's so, and he yeah. Said, and what's more, that means he had to finish that script. So either he just banged this script out and had total faith in it, or what is maybe more likely, he had his doubts and he worked through them. Hmm. Like, he actually was like, it's like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? This is a movie about a bed that eats people. And he's like, no. No, this is good, and I'm gonna finish it. And he made death, be- you know. And he said, "I have." He goes, "I have so many scripts that I've never finished because I yeah. don't have faith in them." But this guy had faith in Deathbed, the bed that eats exactly. people. Exactly. And in that same way, like Ed Wood made a lot of movies. He did. Uh, Bride given- of the Monster. Bride of the Monster, um, and then Glen or Glenda, which I've actually never seen. It's on um, YouTube, and it's in 62 minute entirety. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, it's, but I, I'd be curious to see Glenn or Glenda because it's a personal statement kind of. Yes. Which is if, if we're to believe the movie, it would. Yeah. Then it is definitely a personal statement. Um, so yeah, it, 
Ed Wood is a delight. If, if listeners, if you haven't seen it, seek it out. It won two Oscars. It won Best Supporting Actor for Martin Landau playing Bela Lugosi. Marvelous performance. Uh, and it won Best Makeup for making him look like Bela Lugosi. He, yeah, let's say a little bit more about him. Okay. If, if we can. Um, Martin Landau as Bela Lugosi is... I'm not saying he's like Bela Lugosi. I don't know what he was like in real life, like right. hanging out and just like hanging out and talking to people. But Based on stuff that I've read, not far off as far as his level of bitterness. But it's just... It's just the performance is so captivating yeah, and so reeking of sadness and bitterness at the same time yeah. in equal measure that it, it's, it's compelling. And I'm, I'm trying to put this into words. It's like this, it's kind of the same as Ed Wood's in that it, it feels a little cartoony because of the way they've got him made up and the kind of mannerisms he has, like where he's like yeah. putting his hands out and doing the double jointed yeah. fingers come, come to me kind of, kind of thing. And, He's, he's, he's not, he doesn't seem real and yet he seems real because Martin Landau, uh, grounds him Mm -hmm. in good acting as does Johnny Depp with Ed Wood. You believe them, even though if you saw this person, Ed Wood behaving the way he does in this movie, walking down the street, you'd go the other way because it's just so strange. Um, and yet you have real compassion for these people, these underdogs and it's all Tim Burton. Yeah. Yeah, and I do think uh, with with Martin uh, with uh, Bella Lugosi not seeming completely real, I'm actually more inclined to forgive that, not to imply that it's unforgivable in the first place, but I, I'm more inclined to forgive that because by this time in Bella Lugosi's career, everybody knows who he is for one, primarily for one performance yeah. as Dracula, um, and so he's probably used to sort of performing all the time to mm-hmm. the, right down to the point that when Criswell when they're all sitting down and eating, Criswell says, uh, now Bella, would you like a wine? Like he's <laughs> like, he just leads him into it. And he says, and, and just Bella goes, he's looking straight ahead, just says his line. And he goes, no, I never drink wine. And everyone just like <laughs>, laughs and laughs. Just like, like he knows yeah. how people see him. He's, he's the puppet of the public basically. Yeah. And he's content to let himself be. Yeah. If he, in, in, if he in fact wants to be buried in his Dracula cape, which is true, he was, um, then this is a guy who he probably, embraced the probably resented the image, but also em- embraced it. Yeah. And so I could see him being a guy who's always con- always kind of performing, mm. sort of. Um, but yeah, it's a mar- it is a really marvelous performance by Martin Landau, and one that, you know, there are certain actors that are, that are great. I think Martin Landau's a great uh, actor. I loved him in Crimes and Misdemeanors and... Uh, uh, North by Northwest. North Why not? By, well, he's not he's not in that much, but I guess he's he's appropriately uh, intimidating and creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a movie called Tucker. You remember Tucker? I saw it, but I don't remember much about it. Um, it's uh, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges, yeah. And Martin Landau is in that, and he's and he's uh, very good. He's you know he pl- tends to play sort of in his older years. He kind of played uh, mentor type characters. I saw him at a Ralph's many years ago. What? And I wish. I wish that I had talked to him, but he's, you know, in the produce section, he was in like a suit. Oh, you talked to him. I know. You still talk to him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, every once in a while there's an actor who, you know, they're good, but then they turn in a performance and you're like, I didn't know they had that in them. Hmm. And I don't think I knew that he, if someone said, Hey, Martin Land is going to play Bella Lugosi. I would say like, what, what are you talking about? But it's marvelous. Yeah. Um, I remember my, uh, my parents were always into the Oscars and my mom had a very strong opinion that year 
because uh, she really wanted Gary Sinise to win Best Supporting Actor for Forrest Gump. And okay. indeed, he is great in that. Um, and then Martin Landau won, and she had not seen Ed Wood, neither had I. And so she had said this thing that is often true, but not in this case, in my opinion. She said, she's like, oh, they just gave it to him because he's old. Aww. Now, that is standard. That is a thing that they do. Sure. When I saw the film many years later, and then I saw it, I thought, oh, wow, she's wrong. She's 100% wrong. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and again, Gary Sinise was really great in Forrest Gump. Paul Schofield was really great in Quiz Show. That was Ooh, a good, good category. What a year. Uh, Your you name also had, is mine. That's not a great Paul Schofield, I got to say. Does anyone have a great Paul Schofield? Probably. It's a very specific type of speaking that is like very patrician mm -hmm. in some ways. But, um, and then you also had that year you had uh, Samuel Jackson for Pulp Fiction. Oh, wow. And I forget who the fourth one was. Fifth? I could probably remember it if I tried. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, Edward, it, great performances all around. Um, and yeah, listeners see it if you can, but here's the thing with, with Ed Wood versus Florence, Florence Foster Jenkins. And as far as thematically, um, in Ed Wood, almost everybody is on board with what's happening. You know, uh, uh Sarah Jessica Parker at one point says these movies are terrible mm -hmm. and she leaves. She basically walks out of the picture and Ed is then left only with people that are on board with right. what he is doing. Yes, man. Um, you know, there's a, a scene that's, it's just a very short scene and it's even part of a larger thing. So you, it barely registers, but there's these two guys that are in all of his movies and they're, and one guy says like, Glenn or Glenda, that was a hell of a picture. And he's like, yeah, but this new one's going to be a hundred times better. And the guy's like, is that even possible? <laughs> like these are people that are that, uh, oblivious to yeah. the quality of the films they're making. Um, but, uh, so you don't have, you have a little bit of doubt on the part of, of Ed, and then you get actually some people questioning him a little bit. You have, you know, the Baptists mm -hmm. who are saying, do you know anything about film production? You know, and they're pointing out flaws. Yeah. That tombstone fell over during yeah. the shot. Shouldn't you get that again? <laughs> yeah. Nah, if people, if people are looking at that, they're not paying attention to the story. It's like, okay, well then what about the fact that the... <laughs> <laughs> that the car arrived during the day, but now it's clearly night, you know, and he so storms off. These things. Um, so, you know, those, those scenes are funny, but this is a guy who uh, just believes in what he's doing at all times. Whereas Florence Foster Jenkins, there is only one person that is fully, for lack of a better term, delusional. And that's Florence. And then you have people who know she's bad and they are working to ensure that she continues to be bad publicly. Um, and so, and as we talked about, maybe we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't try to dissuade people from doing something they're passionate about. Now, admittedly, this is a critical show. And so we regularly talk about movies that aren't good, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I do think there's a difference between saying this movie is not good and this person should quit. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, there have been movies that I've seen and I see enough, and even if I hate them, there are things in them that I'm like, that's interesting. I would like to see that developed. I'm interested to see this person make another one. Then, the, you know, and there are some filmmakers that just churn out crap consistently. And after a while, I was like, boy, I wish they would stop making movies. Or, you know, as as we saw in the movie, uh, The Bad and the Beautiful. Did you ever see that? Yes, with, uh, Kirk Douglas, mm -hmm. where he's a producer. And at one point he directs a movie and realizes very quickly, oh, 
I should stick with being a producer. Yeah. And along those lines, here's what I wanted to get into. So we are currently talking about standing on the outside and commenting on this art and, and talking to the people that make it. What if you are the artist? <laughs> what if you are the writer or the actor or the singer or the director? And maybe you're not very good. I don't know. Maybe you don't realize it. Who's to say? Um, therein lay the, the problem here. Um, because what if you are Florence Foster Jenkins? Yeah. Because on top of everything else, we have elements like God's will to take into consideration. And so we should always be, you know, praying for, you know, can you please, will you please, uh, illuminate me on what I should be doing? Um, and you know, listeners know this already that I came out here to pursue screenwriting. Um, and then I started doing BP and it was so rewarding that I kind of moved over to that, but it was not easy for me to do. Um, because on one hand I thought I was actually a pretty good writer in some ways. I was very good with dialogue and I was pretty good with characterization. Story was my issue. Story structure. I was fine with if I had a good, if I had a good story, but mm -hmm. my stories were so character based that it was hard to, first off, it would have been hard to sell these scripts uh, mm -hmm. even if I finished them, but usually I would get about 40 to 50 pages in and realize, Oh shoot, this is a short story. Uh, this is a short film yeah. idea. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it required some self-awareness on my part, but at the same time, like if you're not great with crafting stories, but you're good with a lot of these other things, you could fight through it and you could just be a better writer. And I think if, if I felt like I was supposed to keep doing that, then that's, you know, then I had a responsibility to do it as best I could. But at the same time, I genuinely felt God calling me out of that and into something that I'm better at. I don't mean to imply that I'm a, a wonderful critic or better than, than others, but I think I'm a better critic than I was a writer. Uh, and so it's, but it's a painful decision to make. Um, and it's one that involved my, my own personal pride. Um, because, you know, for reasons I've said on the show already is that, you know, it's, there's such a stigma to critics as failed artists that the last thing I wanted to do, having come out here to be an artist and then move to critic, the last thing I wanted to do was to embody that stereotype. Right. You're only a critic because you can't be a good exactly. artist. Exactly. Those who can't do become critics. Right. Um, and those that can't become critics, uh, teach, which incidentally is what I'm now doing. <laughs> uh, -huh. uh, so Logical maybe, conclusion. maybe I'll teach Jim at UCLA at some point. Teach once they realize I can't teach uh, film history. So, um, so my question here is, you know, if somebody encounters, let's say somebody, and it doesn't even have to be in the arts; it could be in anything. You're pursuing something that you love to do, and you maybe feel like God has called you to do it at least at some point in your life. And you do it and you face resistance. And the resistance is on a number of levels. Um, it could be, you know, just a pure practical resistance, like you're not getting the opportunities. But then maybe there's maybe the, the fact that you're not getting opportunities is indicative of you not being very good at this, even if you do love to do it. Um, you know, so my question, and there's no clear answer to this, is at what point do you not necessarily quit? But at what point do you start to entertain that, okay, maybe this was God's will for my life at a certain point, 
but now maybe I'm supposed to be doing something else. Like I would not, I personally would not have come to Los Angeles if I wanted to be a critic, but the kind of critic that I am only works in Los Angeles, Mm. in my opinion, um, as far as getting guests on the show and stuff like that. And so, and it's arguable whether I would have even started the podcast if I continued to live in, in Chicago. Sure. And so, you know, I had to recognize that God called me out here for one thing and then moved me in, in another direction, but maybe that's not so easy for people. Maybe, you know, we get locked into this idea of what we're supposed to be doing and, and don't entertain the notion that maybe God is pulling us in a different direction because that can sound like a failure. It can sound like, Oh, I've been a fraud this whole time, whatever it is. So I guess I'm putting the question out to you and to the listener, feel free to in the comments section to weigh in, you know, at what point does a person at least entertain the idea seriously that maybe I should move to something else? I don't, I have no idea how to answer that. Yeah. I mean, generally or specifically, I can tell you my own story. Sure. Uh, it it feels relatively fresh, actually, and it's not like we came up or you came up with this combination of movies so that I could talk about this. But it just so happens that um, in the last year or so, I've kind of come face to face with, well, maybe I should stop pursuing writing mm-hmm. here in Hollywood. I mean, I've written before and I've actually made money from it, but it's not certainly not been a career. It certainly hasn't been a consistent moneymaker of any kind. Um, I took a year off um, starting March of. I guess it was 15, mm-hmm. 14, 15. I've lost track now. Um, so that I could finish a script. And I should say the backstory to that even is that I wasn't going to do that until my wife and I discussed it a little bit and realized that we had enough uh, in savings that we could probably live off of it for maybe six months or so. So I said, well, given the time of year that we're starting this, I can't actually get back on the train for the job that I have currently until more like January. So it's going to be more like eight months. So she said, that's fine. Let's just see what happens. So I finished the script, um, probably around the time that I should have been looking, started looking for work again, um, kind of sent it out into the world and started looking for work again. Couldn't find work for a long, long time. Also nothing happened with what I wrote. And so, and I'd kind of been in this situation a, a couple of times where having finished the script and having given it to people that I, uh, you know, admire myself because of their place in the world or their, their skill, their writing talent, um, and got feedback and I got good, good feedback before. And then it just went nowhere. So this is sort of like just yet another adventure in that, except it was in this rarefied position of being off from work as well. So I was able to focus on it and a couple of other things creatively, um, got through all that. Nothing happened with the script and, Meanwhile, other things happened at the uh, the job that I'd been on before where opportunity that I thought should have been mine did not happen and it went to someone else. And I'm like, well, after enough of those kind of moments, you start thinking, well, maybe whether or not I have talent, maybe God is telling me that because of all these slammed doors, like maybe something else should be pursued. Um, it's a very difficult town to try to break through in. And I felt like I was in a position where I I, speaking of rarefied, it's just like I was in a place where if anyone was going to do anything with, you know, the tools at hand, it it should have been me or could have been me. And it just never happened. And I'm like, there's no good answer to that except for two things. This is where I came. This is the point of all this. 
either God's trying to tell me um, that, you know, he's got something else for me, whether it involves writing or not. Um, the other thing is maybe I don't have talent and no one's telling me. Yeah. Maybe I'm Florence Foster Jenkins. Maybe I'm Ed Wood. Um, and, but I, I, I have enough pride in what I've, done, what I've done and learned about writing over the years that I don't believe it's that. So it has to be um, the first. It has to be God has something else lined up. And personally, I don't see how that wouldn't involve writing because yeah. that's the only thing I know how to do um, that, that seems to mean much, at least monetarily. Um, so I, the question was, how do you know when that moment is? How do you know? And, and just, I don't know. And maybe a follow up question is how do, how does one make oneself open to the idea of doing something else? You know? Well, they're kind of, kind of the same question on the Venn yeah. diagram. They overlap a lot, but, um, it seems like that at least in my case, it, you have to come to a place where you don't really know what the, any other options are. You're, you're sort of out of options. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say like bottom of the barrel or you've hit bottom or anything like that, but, it, but just in an emotional place where you kind of come to the realization that because of time past, because of your current age, because of yeah. opportunities, because you're not at that job anymore, you don't really know those people anymore. Yeah. You know, the circumstances are so different now that it makes you have to consider that. Yeah. And then once you start considering it, that's when you start opening yourself up yeah. to the possibility. And then you start going, well, I say that all I know how to do is write, but I also have this aspect of my personality that could yeah. be good, good service in the church or at the, you know, I could tutor kids, you know, after school. I or, can tend bar. I can tend bar. I, I wouldn't tend bar because I don't know a drink from a drink, but yeah. um, it just seems like, it sounds a little overdramatic just to say it, but I think people that have lived this know this, that you kind of have to come to a really kind of a, almost a desperate position before you, yeah. if you've been pressing so hard on one thing, one career goal, yeah. whether it's in the creative field or not, if you've been pressing toward it for long enough, the the very idea of changing course is anathema to you. It's like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what about all the time? What about the school that I paid that I haven't even paid for yet? Yeah. You know, all of that kind of comes into play. It's like, well, it, it, this allows you from looking beyond, well, I just got to keep trying. Just got to yeah. keep trying. Just got to keep trying. But if you just keep trying and you keep ending up at the same place like I have, right. which is at this place where, well, I've got a good product, I believe. Enough people have said it that I be believe it outside of my own head, my own opinion. But it's just not breaking through the right doors maybe that means something yeah. in a spiritual sense. Like maybe that's actually a message from, from God, a tangible message that says, you know what, you can keep banging on that door as long as you want. It doesn't matter because that's not going to happen for you. Yeah. Um, so I could become, you know, bitter about the situation or I could be positive about the situation. I feel like that for the most part, even though there's definitely some frustration and resentment kind of wrapped up in the whole thing, I feel like I've been, uh, at least somewhat optimistic about, yeah, even excited about the possibility of something else. Yeah, I, it's easy for me to say that now because uh, since all of that kind of came to pass in my mind and my spirit, and in Aubrey Nice conversations, a job came along. It's not a writing job, but it's at a writer's office, and I've been there for the last three months, which is one of the months, which is one of the reasons why I've been on the show in a while. Yeah, um, uh, or haven't been on as much, I should say. 
Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's sort of my own story and sort well, of how I've come to that, that the position of being open or opening my, my mind to the possibility of other things. And I think your situation is probably more common. Um, with mine, something else presented itself. It wasn't that I stopped writing or even entertaining the notion of writing and then I moved. And then, so I stopped and then I'm like, well, I guess I'll start a podcast. No, I already had the podcast going. And I was just doing that as a, as a hobby and officially it still is a hobby, but, um, but I loved it. Like I, I found it so rewarding and so fulfilling and it felt right. That's the other thing. Like I would enjoy, I enjoyed writing. But it was very hard. Not to imply that podcasting isn't hard. Like, you still got to try to make it sound like, you know, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> sure. Um, but one came a lot more naturally than the other. And the only reason I was fighting one was for pride reasons. So it was like, okay, well, if that's the only argument I have, that's no argument at all. Hmm. And so many doors were opening as a function of, uh, of the podcast. Again, not that I'm doing it professionally or anything like that. But And then certainly once I started doing more than one lesson you know, I'm being asked in some cases, it's something I pursue in other cases. It isn't, I'm being asked to do live podcasts. I'm writing talks at at places and I'm, I'm making so much more of You're a sought man. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Up to a point. Um, but you know, it's, it's honestly not that the point of this world is for us to, you know, quote unquote, make a difference, but like you know, God has opened so many doors as a function of the podcast that, you know, this last year when I was at the International Christian Film Festival and I gave my talk and then people afterwards are saying like, wow, I'm never going to look at movies the same way again. It's like, that's I, awesome. boy, did I not expect to ever hear that in my life. And yeah. so, hmm. you know, I, so it's nice to get that confirmation, but you know, the idea of, well, there's something in my life that's already so rewarding. I should just let go of this and and hold on to the other one. For some people, they might need to let go before something else presents itself. And that sounds terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so there's a line here said by Orson Welles in Florence Foster, Jane, uh, sorry, in uh, Ed, Ed Wood. Wood. Um, Orson Welles played by Vincent D'Onofrio, but voiced by Maurice LaMarche, friend of Battleship Pretension. Oh. Um, and here's an interesting, uh, it's a good impression. Interesting. It is. Well, it's kind of what he's known for. Um, Christian McKay in Florence Foster Jenkins, who played the critic, uh, in that, uh, was in the film, me and Orson Welles playing Orson Welles. So, I, the second he showed up in Florence Foster Jenkins, I thought he looks like Orson Welles. Yeah. It's weird. And, he, and me and Orson Welles is not that good of a movie, but he is hmm. solid. Good. And it's, and it's more than just an impression. That's the other thing. Like he, he finds some emotional beats to play, thankfully. Um, but Ed Wood, <laughs> I don't think this meeting took place. Uh, Ed Wood sure. meets Orson Welles and Welles says, apocryphal. He says, visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Now, it's kind of funny that Ed Wood, of all people, would be inspired by, you know, the guy who makes the guy who makes the uh, worst movie of all time is inspired by the guy that made the best movie of all time. I know. It's it's a nice moment in in a movie. Um, But I want to focus on that idea of dreams um, because for most people, it's like you got to follow your dreams. Mm hmm. But for us, for Christians, there is an additional thing, which is, 
well, we got to follow God. We need to be obedient to God. And that actually is more important than our dreams. Our dreams, more than anything, more than anything uh, relational, more than anything professional, um, our first dream, our goal should be to follow God and be obedient to God. So along those lines, I actually found this, uh, this article that I liked quite a bit. It's from a website called Unlocking the Bible. And this is by uh, an author named Aubrey Hopner. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but uh, I just wanted to read this and I will link to this uh, in the show notes. Uh, if you have a dream, ask yourself what is driving it. Uh, if it is your own self-interest or self-indulgent, then follow your dreams is a little more than a high achievers version of follow your heart. The practice of elevating one thing above all others in your life, unless it's Christ, is idolatry. If you are seeking after a dream, are you worshiping your passion or your vision of its or your vision of its fulfillment, or are you submitting your dream to Christ, seeking after His vision of your life uh, for your life? Uh, like anything else we care about, it can be difficult to loosen our grip on dreams and put them in God's hands. What if he takes them away and makes me do something really dull? What if he makes me team up with someone else and that person gets all the credit for my dream? Yes, those things could happen. You could be destined for a life that is significant only to those in your close circle. But these fears are all focused on ourselves rather than on Christ. If devotion to God means being used in a different way than, than you had envisioned, then you can rejoice in the opportunity to sacrifice for God's greater purpose. So that's pretty tough stuff to hear about. Um, but it is true. Like as I was reading it, um, I definitely had certain thoughts. Uh, it, it, it was almost enough for me to change the uh, companion film to the movie uh, American Movie. Ooh, Have you seen it? I love that movie. Yeah, it's kind of great. <laughs> it's like Ed Wood. Very, yeah, very similar. But there is a there is a, a scene documentary in, in uh, American movie in which Mark Borchard is is talking to the camera and he says, you know, I don't want to go through my life being a nothing, you know. And so for him, he he loved making movies, but he also definitely saw making movies as a way to elevate himself sure. beyond the obscure life that he was living. Um, Incidentally, that might also be what the impetus to allow him that caused him to allow his life to be filmed. Um, and so I have no doubt about that. Yeah, it's very, very feasible. Um, and it's a thing that I can certainly relate to. Um, I think a lot of people, including me, tend to associate fame. I don't mean to say fame as though like, oh, I want everyone taking my photo. It's nothing like that. But fame in the sense that people know who you are. Um, it's easy to associate fame with success that like, I'm not going to be successful in any kind of way unless people know who I am, whether it's because I'm an amazing lawyer or an amazing critic or whatever it might be. Um, and you know, very few people dream of being, you know, a plumber to go back to what my grandpa was. Um, or very few people dream of being a, an oil executive, which is what my dad was. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it can be very difficult, but those are, I can't imagine anybody, I don't, yeah, and maybe I'm wrong, but at the same time, I can't imagine God's will for anybody's life to simply be famous. It's, it's usually... <laughs> you will, you are supposed to do this thing that serves other people in some way. Yeah. Fame might come as a result, but fame 
for its own sake is likely maybe not a, you know never say never but it's likely not uh god's will for your life uh in and of itself it almost sounds absurd to think that that would be the case yeah uh, i mean i'm sure there are some people who do good things with their fame you know they call attention to something or sure. whatever but even then they are famous for something uh and so you know it's it can be tough to let go of certain things, especially if that means letting go of what I would say a worldly definition of successful is. Right. Um, but that is what we're supposed to do. And in the, you know, I, I very much agree with what this, this author wrote that, you know, I don't like to make the argument of like, we got to let go of our dreams. Because that's the thing. Sometimes you're not supposed to. Sometimes you are supposed to persevere. In fact, that's probably most of the time. You know, I'm I'm very lucky in a lot of ways because so much, as I've said before, so much of what my life has been has just been dropped in my lap by God. Now, I don't mean to say that it, that makes that means it has been easy, because again, like I pursued the critic thing. I don't do it as a job, I don't do it professionally. I do it semi-professionally with battleship pretension, but even then it pays for itself and it pays for hotel rooms when I go and do other things strictly for the podcast. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, and I'm not going to quit because I don't think anything else, I don't even feel called away from it so that I can pursue teaching. Thankfully, these are two things that can go together, but also I've seen such great things happen as a result of my being a critic, both in my life and the lives of other people is like, I get no sense that this is a thing I should, I should abandon simply that I should incorporate this other element into it. Um, but at, at the same time, everything school related was essentially dropped in my lap. I mean, there's so many elements and they, and it continues to happen. The the TA ship that I'm doing uh, right now was not my idea, at least not the timing of it. It's a fresh development. Yeah. And it's, so it's very, um, it's very exciting, but at the same time, not everybody is as fortunate as I am where, you know, for me, I feel like I haven't had to take that many leaps of faith because, (laughs) you know, to let's stick with the, the, that idea of like the trapeze, you know, I feel like I usually have a, a hand pretty firmly on the uh, on the next one, so which allows me to let go of this one. Whereas I think a lot of people are asked to take a leap of faith and stop the thing they're doing right now before something else presents itself. Tyler Smith, never quite airborne. That's the never. That's the the next podcast I'll I'll do, um, and it's all about me and how how God has blessed me. Well, I, th- I think in my case, uh, and in the case of so many. Well, you too. I mean, you came out here to be a screenwriter, so you're clearly a creative type, and this takes a certain level of creativity as well. But uh, the writers, the directors, uh, the musicians, there's something inherently built into wanting to be good at that mm-hmm. and being successful at that that equates automatically to fame somehow, and sure. especially in its inherent in this town, and I should say Los Angeles. Um, people move out here to be successful on the level that's, that Los Angeles can provide if you get there. And that means famous. That means success equals fame and fame equals success. And it's impossible to separate the two when you're here. So when I'm here and I'm face to face with this question mark of, um, you know, I know I can write. I know I love to write. Other people seem to like what I write and enjoy reading it. 
and I'm in this town, I keep thinking because I'm in this town, that's why I moved here. I should be able to break through a door with that thing and then get success, which equals fame of some kind or money at least. Um, but what does it mean if you sort of try to dis- dissociate yourself from, uh, disassociate yourself from the fame aspect of it? And you just want to be good at what you do right. in LA. It almost doesn't make sense. It's like, well, why are you doing yeah. it? Why are you here? And, 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 you know, in LA, if you're not trying to be successful slash famous at it, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm here. I'm still writing, obviously. What am I writing for? And so it's this constant churning, reinventing, sort of self-perpetuating kind of question mark about like, why, why am I still here slash why am I still doing this if it's not for fame, which I don't really want. Yeah. I say that. Here's my, my, the maxim I say to myself all the time. I'm, I don't want to be famous, but I want the whole world to know that. <laughs> yeah. That's sure. the feeling. It's sort of the cyclical thing that's in my head um, all the time. I, I don't, I don't, I want to be famous for my humility <laughs> and it's ridiculous, but that's kind of a, yeah. it's a weird sort of burning light in the middle of me. It's like, I, I don't want, I want people to know that I don't need that. And you know, uh, we all, we all have that. I think maybe not, maybe not ever, maybe some people are perfectly content, uh, with, a fairly quiet life. Uh, in fact, one could say they've made it their ambition to lead one. That's from the Bible, everybody. Uh, it's also from the Hobbit. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know which one was first. Anyway, uh, you know, and I, I'm I'm a little bit okay. So I'll just say this: I'm a little bit uh, embarrassed to admit it, but you know, every year around this time, and so the time that we're recording, late December, every year around this time, you get a lot of lists put out you know, best podcasts of the year. Right. Now I know that none of my shows are making the larger list, but then you'll get smaller ones. 2016 podcast that every movie, movie lover should listen to, uh, you know, best movie podcast of 2016, whatever. It's like, all right, I'll click on that. (laughs) I click on it. We're, we're very seldom on it. I think in the last few years we've been on one or two. Um, you're talking about Battleship. Battleship Pretension. Yeah. Oh, yeah. More than one lesson. Absolutely not. Um, uh, I blame myself. Yeah, we were doing really good until you showed up. Uh, what and the heck? someone said, like, who's that little impish guy? I don't like him very much. I thought he was gone. He was gone for three or four months, and now <laughs> oh, he's back. Doggone yeah. it. I guess they're not making the list in 2017. Yep. Um, so, so I don't see Battleship Pretension on that list, and I immediate, and despite listener feedback personal enjoyment and connection with guests like good guests and like big name guests, you know, for us and just friends, literally every other measure of success, despite the fact that we have sponsors, despite all of that, at the end of every year, when I see that we are not on any of these lists and it's other podcasts, some of which are simply better known and other podcasts that I've listened to, I'm like, they are not as good as we are. Um, and they just make the list over and over again. Yeah. That's when I start to feel a little bit resentful. And that's when sure. I start to think like, why am I even doing this? I literally ignore everything else yeah. that is positive because in this one regard, yeah. no, that's, it's that's, not being that's human nature. In fact, it's reflected in uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, which is not a one-to-one comparison no. by the way, because you, you are a good oh, co- podcaster. Thank you very much. 
But the moment when... Uh, Are you my Hugh Grant? Are you trying to shield me from myself? You're so awful. <laughs> I just oh, I feel so good to tell you finally. Ugh. No, uh, in Florence Foster Jenkins, when uh, she's finally gone to Carnegie Hall or somewhere, and there's a review. It's the guy. It's the Orson yeah. Welles guy has written a review, and Hugh Grant does everything in his power to buy up every paper yeah. that has that bad review. She's, meanwhile, reading all these good reviews, and she's like, oh, I'm good, I'm good. And... Uh, she kind of catches on to what he must be doing and goes to the newsstand and the newsstand guy says, yeah, you threw all those in the trash can. So she goes to the trash can, picks one up and reads it. And now she's like devastated because yeah. she got this bad review by fake Orson Welles. Um, and that's, I, I actually wrote this down as a note on the movie. It's like, that is me yeah. because I can hear so many people say, this is good. This is good. Maybe work on this a little bit, but it's otherwise yeah. it's good. And this one person says, I just don't get it. And I'm like, oh, I'm a failure. Yeah. I'm terrible. I should just give up and go home. You know, it's because I think that's, that is human nature to look at the list of podcasts from that year. You're not on it and you disregard all the good that has been done yeah. that you have done yeah. and just disregard it because you, you take to heart the bad news yeah. and you disregard the good news. It's ridiculous, but it's human. And, and some of it, you know, might be, I think some of it is natural, which is, you know, uh, if you're doing a good thing for long enough and there are people that are evaluating that good thing, it stands to reason they'll eventually find you. It's not necessarily going to happen. Um, but I think there's also definitely a pride element of like, I want everyone to know how good I am. And now, and, and nobody does cause no, you know, everyone's so busy. I do have certain objections in the podcasting world in general, uh, that are larger than just my own issues, which is like, it's so frustrating when they say like, Oh, uh, here's a list of the podcasts you have to listen to. And it's like, Oh, interesting. This American life. Gosh, way to go out on a limb on that one. Predictable, you know, and just like, Oh, well this famous person started one. Yeah. You should listen to that one. I don't know if it's any good, but they're famous. Sure. They don't say that, but that's, yeah. And so, like that, it's, it's bothersome when someone's like, Hey, you know what, what band is really good is the Beatles. You should check them out. <laughs> Not to say that the Beatles are bad, but at the same time, what's even the point of that list at that point? Like yeah. when I, when I read those lists, I think, does this person even listen to podcasts yeah. or do they just look at iTunes? Like, it's all the, the easiest choices. Yeah. It's all the easiest choices. There are no deep cuts, whether they be me or anybody else. So that's one thing. But, but for me, there's definitely a, a pride element. Um, and it's a thing that I need to to get over. And I don't mean to imply that that is the case with Ed Wood or Florence Foster Jenkins. I don't think that these people are looking for fame. I think they're looking to just mm. do the thing that they love. So the question then is, you know, for for the listeners and for people that are in their position, um, you know, at what point do you feel like you should move away from this? And it's different for everyone. I wish I could say a clear uh, you know, a clear, uh, answer, but it's different for everybody. You might be in a situation where, uh, like you are, where you are good at what you do, certain doors aren't opening up, but, it, but you haven't yet felt this, like a genuine call to go and do something else, particularly because you're good at it. Um, and so, uh, and there's, and yeah, nothing else has presented itself that you should do instead. So, until you, but you should always be open to like those messages. Boy, that that is a you problem. Should. What? I said that is a problem. What is? The fact that nothing else has opened itself up as the alternative. But, but isn't that freeing to you that it's like, all right, I, it, I, it I haven't gotten any major messages that I should do something else. Well, it, it was, it was freeing and, uh, it exciting even 
oddly enough, until the latest job came up. Hmm. And it was almost like, almost like, uh, like once I was ensconced back in another job, like I'd been doing like the year, year and a half before, that maybe that's when I realized how close I came to ultimate sort of financial devastation hmm. by not having work at all and, and not having an alternate to what I was now doing. Um, it's just, it's, it's weird. It's just the sort of realization of how, how close Aubrey and I came to, to being in a real financial spot. I mean, yeah. we already were, but then another month or so we would have been, who knows if we'd be living here. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously for everyone, it's different because everyone's story is different, but my story is that it feels like if this job hadn't come along, I would have been airborne. Yeah. I would have been between trapezes, if that's yeah. a word. Um, and I wouldn't have known what that next trapeze was. And it can be very, yeah, it can be very scary. Um, I, I feel, I feel fortunate that I've never been in a position where I have to quit something. There was one, I guess I had quit Blockbuster without anything else on the horizon. And so for several months I was interning and then for, I guess for about 11 months, I, uh, no, that's not true. I'm sorry. 12 or, le or, or 13 months. I didn't actually have a job. I wasn't doing anything that brought in any money. I was reading the occasional script here and there and that was it. Um, and then I got a job that I didn't like, but it was still a job. Um, and so that was a little bit scary, but at the same time, there are instances where I've been let go from something. So it's like, well, I don't have a choice here. So I guess this is just where I am. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some people like you have a choice to make or you're presented with a choice. And what I'll say is that as scary as that might sound to be presented with this choice, um, I think something that we can take comfort in is that first off, like if you're, you know, if you're praying about it, and you're, t you know, and you're seeking out, you know, you're, you're going into the Bible, you're seeking out the advice of friends that you trust. And then you make a decision. Let's say theoretically, it's the wrong decision. And I'm, I'm like really emphasizing theoretically. Um, I guess hypothetically is what I should have said either way. Um, God is not going to be limited by that. He's not going to say, well, I was going to do amazing things, but they chose this over here. Even after praying and reading the Bible and talking to their friends, I'm out of ideas. So I guess this person's on their own. I guess I'll focus on my will for somebody else. No, of course not. Like God can, uh, we see over and over in the Bible, people that even when they do something actively wrong, he's still able to do amazing yeah, things through Yeah, it's them. true. And so, um, so, you know, like, don't freak out that much about it. It is very scary. I understand. But at the same time, like we, we do serve a God who is much larger than yeah. our success or our failure. Uh, and in the meantime, let's say you are in a position, uh, where you haven't felt called out of something. Uh, but right now nothing is really happening as a result. Um, the most you can do, and you were talking about it yourself is that you, wrote a script, you ran it by people, you made it as good as you could make it because in, so that you were ready for whatever came next. It could be calling you away from this, or it could be a door opening, whatever it is. You know, you are now like you're in a more stable job, uh, not as a writer, but what, I, but in a writer's room, um, 
And so I'm sure there's part of you that thinks like, well, nothing came of this time that I was terrified financially. Well, you got scripts out of it. True. And when the time comes, I'll say if or when the time comes, you now have a script you can show somebody. Mm -hmm. You didn't have that before. Yet another script, I should say. Yet another script. And maybe your best one. Who's to say? Mm. You know, and I and I'm not going to guarantee that that's the case, but you stayed in practice. Like you 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 kept working and you did the only thing you knew how to do and and the only thing you knew to do and you did the best you could. So I'm going to go ahead and bring this up and I've said it many times on the show before. Colossians 3 verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So you were, you know, in, you know, in, in lieu of, of getting a, a, a big dramatic message from God, the only thing you can be doing is like, well, I guess this is where I am right now. So this is the best job I can be doing. And, you know, if you are somebody like Ed Wood or Florence Foster Jenkins, who are, they're not good at this thing, they may enjoy doing it and that does make a difference, but, um, but they're not very good at it. So if you're somebody who feels really passionately about something that you're not good at, I personally don't understand it because to me, I avoid everything I'm not good at. Um, and I would ser- the only passion I feel is passionately uh, avoiding that uh, like the plague. <laughs> but, um, but if you're somebody who does love that thing, then by all means, cont- you know, continue to do it. But at the same time, you know, I read a book once about God's will and says like, you know, sometimes God is not that subtle. Are you good at something? Do you love doing it? Are there opportunities to do it either professionally or otherwise? Right. If the answer to to all three or even two of those three is yes, then you're probably on the right track sure. if, by pursuing this thing. Yeah. But if the answer is no to all of those, maybe take that as something of a hint. Yeah. Not to quit altogether, but recognizing that maybe God has something else for you. And if you're resistant to that, as I was with the critic thing, ask why are you resistant to it? It might be pride reasons. Um, And it can be very scary and it can be very sad to quote unquote give up on your dream. But at the same time, we are not supposed to be governed by our dreams. We are supposed to be governed by God's will for our lives. And eventually, you know, if we turn that into our dream, then we're always achieving it. Right. Always pursuing and always achieving. So anyway, will you be my life coach? Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. So first, uh, same okay. time next week, 50 how, minutes. Like how, how much do you want me to comment on? Cause I think that shirt is atrocious. <laughs> oh, I love the shirt. <laughs> well, that's why you need a life coach. Mm. Uh, I'm so joking. Much for of course, it, <laughs> I'm joking. Of course it's a marvelous shirt. Uh, okay. We'll go ahead and, and leave it there. Um, we talked about some pretty big stuff in this episode. Um, and stuff that is not definitive. Like I said, it's different for everybody. So if you have any, uh, if you have any thoughts, feel free to leave them in the comments section, or you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at More Lessons. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, and I think that is it. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Robert, thanks for being here, as always. Absolutely. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.